Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia, and we are recording this on September 30th, 2020. I always have to check the date because it's never clear to me what day it is. We have an incredible show today. It is packed with a lot of interviews. Our guest today is a familiar face. Luis Bolaños is back. Luis is a former homicide detective, DEA agent, 30 years in law enforcement. He is a private investigator, has his own firm, and does a lot of pro bono work, a lot of exoneration cases. I'm so glad you're here today, Lewis. How are you? Hi, Anna. Good morning. Always happy to be here with you. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Great, great. And I know you're working on some really incredible cases. You and I were on the phone the other day and you were filling me in. I know we can't talk about it. Not yet, but we'll see. Okay. (laughs) We'll get there. Yes. Now, in addition to our regular cases that we're going to talk about today, we also want to let you know we have an interview coming up a little later in the program. We have an interview with Dr. Terry Dubrow. He is the host of Oxygen's License to Kill and on E! Botched. Well, the, the great thing about Dr. Dubrow is that he's going to share this exclusive clip from this week's episode from License to Kill, and it is about medical crimes, meaning meaning the serious crimes that are committed. We're not talking about, you know, botching something up. We're talking about crimes committed in the world of the medical field and how hard they are to prosecute. So that's a great interview. All right, let's get to our cases because we've got a lot to talk about. Our cases this week, this one is very disturbing and I am very upset about what has happened with this case. 
two Amish brothers in Missouri have been given probation. No prison time, zero prison time after sexually assaulting their 13-year-old sister who gave birth to a baby as a result of those numerous assaults. Legally, they pleaded guilty to molestation. How is this not rape? They were originally charged with rape. So um, there's a huge uproar about this case and how the special treatment they got. We're going to get into that. But our first case is a man in New Hampshire who allegedly forced his wife to decapitate her lover after learning that she was having an affair. Okay, let's get to the facts here, Lewis. 31-year-old Brittany Barron um, and her husband, Armando Barron, who's 30 years old, were arrested on September 24th and 25th. They were arrested on separate days for the murder of 25-year-old Jonathan Amrald. His body was found on September 22nd. Here's what happened. So the husband must have been suspecting something because he started going through the wife's phone and he found some evidence of an affair. And then he set the guy up. So it is looking like it could be premeditated because it appears that when the husband discovered that his wife was having an affair, that he then sent a text message to the lover pretending to be the wife and luring him to a park. The whole point of luring him to the park, I believe, was probably to kill him. I don't think he was going to talk to him. I could be wrong. Probably not, but that's something that the husband and his attorney, defense attorney, is going to hit hard, absolutely, because premeditation is going to be a big element as to whether this is a capital offense or not. Uh, And he's going to want to try to minimize that and possibly show that, again, I'm not an attorney, but just for an investigative point here, they're going to want to minimize that and try to show this is an idea he came up with after he met with them there. It was not premeditated. Uh, but I agree with you. I think it was after he knew exactly what he was going to do, and they'll be able to prove that. Yeah, I, I, I feel like this is one of those cases where you're so angry that the anger and the bitterness is festering, and I, I sense that's how this case um, evolved. Yes, just, there, was, just, there, was, there was absolutely a lot of festering going on, Anna, and that's probably what led to him building it, with, looking at her emails or text messages and going on her phone. Something he had done many times, I'm sure. Uh, it was just a way of life for him, I'm sure. Oh, probably not the first time. So yeah. as a lot of these affairs tend to go, uh, the wife worked with the lover at a medical supply company, not unusual workplace right. affairs. And it's possible that the husband already was suspecting that something was going on. So we think that that is the motive for the murder. Now, according to court records, Armando first, before he managed to get to the park to meet the lover, he beat his wife, he shoved a gun in her mouth, then he strangled her to the point that she passed out. And apparently, what's really frightening here is that their nine-year-old child supposedly witnessed this. Then once he, I guess, threatened her to the point of submission, she went with him. Right. Two things. But that poor kid is going to be a witness in this to some degree. And it's probably been interviewed as to what happened and obviously affected for the rest of her life as to what she saw and what she has to live with for the rest of her life. It's always going to be the forefront of her life to some degree. 
Um, and then employees employees knew about the affair where they worked at the medical facility. Those employees were well aware of the affair she was having. So chances are very high that the husband also knew uh, if the employees knew her fellow peers. Probably, probably. Clearly, there are going to be two versions of events here because you have whatever it is that the husband is going to tell the authorities and what the wife has told authorities. Now, she is claiming that while she participated, meaning she decapitated her lover, that she did it at the direction under duress of her husband. So that's, that's her claim, that through all of this, she was forced to go along with this. Right. The, and the biggest piece of evidence that backs up that claim that she is making, that her attorney is making, is that photograph, the booking photograph. She was pummeled, just pummeled. One of the first worst beatings to the face I have seen. Um, and, you know, there is, an, there is a definite argument to that. Look at her face, and it shows not only the show she's been beat, but it shows a freshness is consistent with the time frame she's giving. So that is something that's absolutely going to have to be addressed in court if that was a catalyst for her becoming hushed and developing a reasonable fear that ever, anyone else could have felt in, in the same situation. Correct. And the child, of course, will be able to corroborate that beating independently. Yes. Yeah. All right. So let's now get to the park. The husband and the wife get to the park. The lover who thinks he's meeting his lover at the park also shows up. And at this point, the husband is armed with a gun and he says to the wife, kill him. And she refuses. She says she can't. So he decides he's going to take matters into his own hands. So the husband takes the gun and he orders Jonathan to get into his own car. Because remember, Jonathan drove his car there. So the couple, they join Jonathan, the victim, in the car. And that is when the husband says to the wife, slit his wrists. And apparently that she did do. We do not believe, based on the autopsy, that that was the cause of death. The cause of death was that the husband shot Jonathan three times, according to authorities, twice in the chest, once in the head. Yeah. Yeah, the pathologist will be able to tell most likely uh, based on the hemorrhaging and the, and the bruising on the wrist if that was done post or pre the homicide. Uh, now, so this is be very important. Yeah. Here's what's also interesting that gets us back to premeditation. This might actually show that maybe it wasn't because they're in the car, right? And they are headed to somewhere well they're headed to yet another park another campsite but on the way the husband stops to buy some supplies and the husband buys a tarp lighter fluid a shovel and these are all things that are later used to dispose of the body and of the head and also cleaning supplies because remember he was killed in his own car so there was going to be a lot of dna forensic evidence inside that car Right. So the, my question is, the fact that he stopped at the store after he killed the lover, does that show that maybe it wasn't premeditation, that now he's got to figure out what to do with the guy he just killed? I think you're correct. Yes. If you can prove that, that those items were purchased after the homicide, that's a very reasonable argument, uh, defense. I see that coming. 
but you have to approve it. Yeah. Okay. So um, the husband and the wife did get into separate cars to drive to this campsite because it's it's this campsite where they are going to dispose of the body. So don't forget, we also have the car that the lover Jonathan was killed in, his very own car. They have to figure out how to dispose of that, cover it up, clean it up, whatever you want to call it. So it doesn't seem like the most organized plan at this point. They get to the campsite. It's a mess. Right? It's a complete mess, Anna. It's like a plan up to this point. Right? You got a right. dead body in a car, blood right. everywhere. You have to dispose of the corpse. Um, you've just beaten your wife, and she's not only, but she's also, you know, she's a witness. She's an accomplice and a witness. Right. According to the arrest warrant, the husband told his wife, once the sun came up the next morning, that he would forgive her. What kind what of a statement is that? What the right. heck does that mean? Forgive her? He's committed murder. Her crime is adultery. He's going to forgive her for cheating on him. I, uh, that's crazy. That's where his mind is at. And putting victim blaming, blaming this whole thing on her. That, that seems he's going in that direction. This ended up in a homicide. Shame on you. Yeah. Now, in order, I guess, for her to get this forgiveness that he's offering up, he directs his wife, Brittany, to cut off, to chop her lover's head. He tells her, oh, you got to do this, because otherwise the dental records are going to be how they identify him. Clearly, this guy has no clue about DNA evidence. If he thinks that the dental records are going to be the problem in this case, Right. So she does. She it, decapitates him. And I think part of it is, is a mind game he might be playing. I can see that, that he's trying to get her more involved in, in the homicide and in, in hiding the body. Just get her deeper and deeper and deeper with the goal here to protect himself. Um, so I, she did it. She decapitated him. That's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, I wonder... Again, this may go to what was her mental state at the time to be able to accomplish something so heinous, mm. not only on another human being, but on her, on her lover, someone right. she cared for. So she chopped off his head and she buried it. Now, the plan, while it sounds already confusing, actually gets even more confusing at this point, Lewis, which again leads me to believe there wasn't much of a plan. So... They start digging a grave because they got to put the rest of the body somewhere. But all of this gets interrupted. Okay. All of this gets interrupted because a phone call comes in, right, to the husband and wife. They're looking for the wife because Jonathan is missing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So whatever plan they may have had, now the husband decides, oh, got to come up with plan B. Because, um, yeah, they're, they may be looking for us because now they know that Jonathan is missing. And who rang the bell that Jonathan was missing? His mom? Yep. And at some point that led them to his work, place of work. And that's where they confirmed that he hasn't shown up here. And he has been involved with a fellow coworker who's married. And you see the snowball and the investigative responding law enforcement. They're going to look in the most obvious direction first, which in this case is correct. Um, and at some point, probably led them to the ability to uncover those initial text messages that Jonathan was responding to. Yes, because they, yes, they would have been able to get into his records, but not his phone. 
because Jonathan's phone was with the couple. And when the couple discovered that people are looking for Jonathan, and obviously they'd be asking her because she's the lover, so she might know where he is. Yeah, the husband a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of times, Anna, you don't need to actually have the phone. You can conserve a search warrant on the phone company, the carrier, and right. sometimes you cover it that way. So uh, it's still possible they, can, they could have viewed that text message. Oh, absolutely. I, I think what I was getting to was that mm -hmm. the reaction was immediately the husband says to the wife, we got to destroy Jonathan's phone. So he hits it on a rock, he destroys it, and then they mm -hmm. kind of just scatter the phone parts all around the campsite. That was how they dealt with that. Additionally, what looks incredibly suspicious here is that the wife, on that Monday that Jonathan did not show up to work, neither did she. She called in sick and she told Human Resources, she called HR and she said, you know what, I'm going to be quitting. Now, if that's not already looking crazy. Right. Oh, she was telling the truth. She was sick. Yeah. Yeah, she was definitely, definitely in a very bad place. Yeah. So the husband is now changing his plan in real time. And as part of that, he says to the wife, okay, I want you to start sending text messages to your friends and your family and tell them that you're going to be leaving town in a little while. You need some time. You need a fresh start. You're going to New Mexico and you are going to be visiting your sister. Yeah, his mindset for this game plan he was coming up with, and she's basically, it looks like, just accepting whatever he says as gospel, and she's going to go in whatever direction he points her. Um, every one of those text messages, every idea he came up uh, with just brought law enforcement's attention, focus on them even more. Every single message they sent out is going to come back and be used against him in court. Uh, he had, it was a horrible plan, horrible strategy, thank goodness because it focused the direction for law enforcement uh, correctly. This is the part, there's a lot that puzzles me, but this one mm. is, is, is beyond. Okay, so he tells his wife that he needs to get back, remember there's a child involved here, that he needs to get back, I guess because he's figuring out the rest of his plan, and he leaves his wife to clean up Jonathan's uh, corpse and the scene and to clean up the car, and he gives her... Two weapons, one of the guns apparently used to kill Jonathan. He gives her the guns because she says, you're probably going to need this to protect yourself against wildlife. So clearly he knew, was pretty certain that she would never turn that gun on him. But my first thought when I read that he had left her with the firearms and left her alone at the campsite was that he was setting her up. Uh, maybe she was so emotionally gone for a potential suicide. That's the first thought that came to my mind. And if she would have been overwhelmed with everything that had happened and, and it was becoming real to her, what was uh, in their future and, and her freedom was about to be taken from her, um, that that might be uh, a tool he could use to evade uh, being identified as the suspect in this. That was the first direction I looked at, I, I thought of when, when I heard that. Um, you know, that's know. interesting mm -hmm. because I think ordinarily I would agree with that theory but I think there's something about this guy and his possession of his wife that he didn't want to lose his wife because he had just gone through all of this to get rid of the lover, right? And to control right. her. Right. She, you know, she had ample opportunities. She, they, like you said earlier, they drove in two separate cars to go to this location. She could have gone her own way to some degree. Who knows? But um that's that's all going to be something in the package she presents to the court, her, her attorney, 
as to where her mindset was at and why she had this extremely reasonable fear that her life was in danger and possibly her child's. So she's at the campsite for a few days because some hunters saw her there. And the hunters said to her, excuse me, but you're not allowed to camp here. It's illegal. This is not a campsite. So she did not leave the area. So the hunters called Fish and Game and said, you know, there's a lady here and she's camping and she shouldn't be camping. So then two wildlife officers from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department came out. They find Brittany at the campsite, and they said to her once again, you can't camp here, and supposedly this is how she responded, I'm in big trouble. What an understatement, and and it had to have been obvious to the officers that she was in big trouble because she had two black eyes, she had bruises around her neck from the strangulation. It was obvious that this woman had been beaten and she's been now, what, in, in a campsite for days, in wilderness for days. So clearly mm-hmm. not looking like she's all there. So two, com- two comments on that, Anna. So you know how much I like to camp. And yes, you do. Hunters are very, I don't hunt, but uh, hunters are very protective of, of the places they're allowed to hunt. And campers are protective, protective of the places that they're allowed to camp for free. It's very serene and, you know, very protective of, of the environment. So when you, they see someone like this, it is so common for one camper to pick the phone and someone that's camping in a place where they should not be. Happens almost every day. So I, I don't know how familiar they were with the area that they went to, but that's something that they missed because I, I, anybody that saw them probably would have called very, very likely if they were that deep in the wilderness. The uh, responding wildlife officers had the same training as any other peace officer when it comes to domestic violence and identifying and, and uh, seeing flags that should cause you to ask questions in that direction. And I'm sure their first thought when they saw her face was, hmm, where's the other half? You're out here by yourself. You're giving us weird answers, weird responses. There's something else going on here. Um, it, yeah, again, the mess continues. Mm-hmm. So the officers, the wildlife officers, found Jonathan's Subaru. Remember, this is the car that he was killed in. The car was covered with a tarp and and sticks as if no one was going to find it. And it looked like she had been cleaning it, but let's face it, trying to get blood and um, and human parts out of a car is not that easy. Right. So then they found the torso, that well, the headless body, really, in a nearby brook. It was wrapped in a tarp as well. That's when the wildlife officers handcuffed Brittany, held her there, called police, and then when, a, when the police got there and managed to get a closer look at the body, they said they could see the blood pouring into the water. Mm. How, what a horribly gruesome scene. Yeah. Okay, so Brittany was arrested, and then her husband, so she's arrested first, then her husband, Armando, was arrested the next day, and apparently they got him just as he was leaving with the daughter. They thought he was about to flee. So now you have this daughter who has both parents in jail. Both of them most likely will be doing some time for this crime. I mean, obviously they claim that they are innocent, um, that those are the pleas that they have entered, but nonetheless, we have a man who is dead, and uh, presumably there's going to be a lot of evidence and DNA evidence that will be supporting 
uh, the story that the that the wife is telling. The wife has already said to the authorities, "Oh yeah, this is what happened." Right, right. <sighs> so now this is where it gets even more interesting. Armando is charged with capital murder, but his wife Brittany is charged with three counts of falsifying physical evidence. She's not charged with the murder. Do you find that interesting? I absolutely find that very interesting and concerning because it's possible that the victim, Jonathan, was already dead when she decapitated him. Maybe she wasn't there when the killing happened, or maybe she just had nothing to do or no intent with participating in the initial killing, and all her crimes came after the fact. So I see why it's possible that she was not charged with that, but uh, we'll find out. The mm-hmm. pathologist is going to figure that one out. There's no doubt. Well, presumably she was in the car when he was shot. We don't know. I mean, she was told to slit her lover's wrists, and then that's when the husband uh, fired the shots, when he allegedly fired the shots. That's at least her version of events. Right. We'll, we'll soon figure out what the truth is here. So because Brittany is not charged with murder, her attorney asked that she be released maybe with an ankle monitor. And, of course, remember, they have a daughter here. Now, the prosecutor said to the judge, no way. She can't be released. Prosecutor Scott Chase said this at the arraignment hearing. While the state recognizes that the defendant has been cooperative and has assisted investigators, this case is especially heinous and gruesome. The brutality of the crime, combined with the fact that the defendant's destruction of evidence was in an effort to conceal a capital murder is especially alarming and concerning for the safety of the general public. Beyond just cleaning up physical evidence in the victim's car, after driving Jonathan's body nearly 200 miles north of the crime scene in Jonathan's own car, deep into the north woods, the defendant decapitated Jonathan, wrapped his head in a tarp, and placed it in a grave in order to prevent investigators from identifying Jonathan if his body was ever found. The defendant then wrapped Jonathan's body in a tarp and dragged him deeper into the woods where investigators found him in a shallow brook. This was all with the intent to conceal a capital murder. Had this defendant successfully destroyed that evidence, her husband, the alleged murderer, may very well have evaded detection and or apprehension. So, Lewis, when you hear the details as described by the prosecutor, it once again makes me think like, wow, it's incredible that she has not been charged with something even more serious than she has. Right. And that could still be coming. But I have to give kudos to this prosecutor for not giving in to putting her out, releasing her on an ankle bracelet. That's just crazy. And look, just because that she's cooperating doesn't mean that she is not a danger to society or even her own child. She is a proven danger if these facts turn out to be true. So I, kudos to the prosecution for making the right decision and, and fighting that and, and winning that point. Both have pleaded not guilty to the charges, and they are both being held without bond. Lewis, before we get to our next case about the Amish brothers accused of raping their sister, we have an interview with Dr. Terry Dubrow about medical crimes. He managed to squeeze in an interview with us while he was seeing patients and doing surgeries. So here's a, here's a bit of that. So in my experience, medical crimes are some of the hardest cases to not only prove, but to prosecute. That is why I am so excited about our guest today, because Dr. Terry Dubrow is here with us, 
and he is the host of Oxygen's License to Kill, but you surely know him from the other TV show that he hosts, Botched. Welcome, Dr. Dubrow. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you. Oh, I, I, I have a feeling we could go on for hours about this. Uh, a little bit about the show so our viewers and listeners can understand. License to Kill investigates cases of murderous doctors, nurses, and medical professionals, and then, of course, follows the stories of these patients who suffer and die because of their reckless actions. And new episodes air every Saturday at 6 o'clock at Eastern Time and Pacific Time on Oxygen. Okay, so let's get straight into it. Here is why I'm so excited about your series, because I honestly believe, as a crime journalist, these cases are underreported, they're very hard for journalists to tell, and I think it is a travesty to these patients who suffer because no one ever believes them, right? Because no one's ever going to believe that a doctor or a nurse or a medical technician is going to harm them. Well, it goes against everything we know because you go to a doctor or nurse and you expose yourself and you're at your most vulnerable and you expect them to care for you and do everything they possibly can to help you. But when a medical professional goes off the deep end. First of all, you don't even really know that there's been a crime committed, do you? I mean, exactly. if there's a dead body laying in a living room somewhere or some place of business, everybody knows there's been a crime. But if a patient or a person at a nursing facility or somewhere else succumbs to an illness, well, that's sort of the natural progression of a disease and kind of expected. But if we use our education, training, and skills to perpetrate crimes on you, we're doing it in such a way, first of all, we're doing it in a way that you usually can't figure out because we're using science-based knowledge that you don't have that information and police officers, investigators don't have that information. And there's really no clues because of the way we're doing it. Oh, and the other thing is so many of the patients are already ill to begin with. So the fact that they may have died in surgery or the fact that they may have been left paralyzed in surgery because of surgery, it, it, it makes it very difficult to prove not just – this is beyond negligence. What we're talking about here is, is criminal. I, I covered a case about a neurosurgeon in Texas, and here's the amazing thing, okay? He went from hospital to hospital – it, this is a guy who had a cocaine problem. I mean, he, he what he did to people was unbelievable. So here's what I want to ask you, because I, I looked at the episode that, that we're going to show you a little clip about. And one of the things you talked about is, so this doctor went from hospital to hospital, and that's with a medical board watching him, right? But right. in your upcoming case, you have a medical technician who hopped from not only hospital to hospital, but state to state while he was shooting up fentanyl in the hospitals. Isn't that incredible? If you think about it, first of all, how does a medical technician get their hands on a narcotic? Number one, right? Because narcotics are only supposed to be available to ICU nurses, physicians, anesthesiologists. The way he got his hands on the, on the narcotic is part of the mystery. One of the things that's very interesting about License to Kill is that it's like an unfolding mystery because you don't know how many of these professionals perpetrated the crimes and the investigators are not medical professionals. And even if they were, usually 
we're able to use agents that sort of disappear and even aren't found on autopsy. And that's one of the interesting things, because if a person who had surgery, right, is found at autopsy to have fentanyl, a known narcotic in their blood, well, they just had surgery. So you would expect it. So what's unusual about that? That's why these cases are unfortunately, fortunately, so interesting, so difficult to figure out, but so compelling. Well, what is crazy about this episode that you all are are going to air this week is that this guy had hepatitis C and he's infecting everyone with hep C. And it was just like, it, it was like watching the sleuths go through everything, trying to figure out, well, wait a minute, how did this patient, this patient came to the hospital without hep C, without, you know, and, and hep C at that point was absolutely a death sentence, especially for people with underlying conditions. You know, it really was. And what's so unusual is that, okay, so they got hep C and that doesn't necessarily tell you that there's been a crime committed either, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. these cases are so difficult to figure out and so difficult to prosecute. And what's so interesting about the majority of these cases, particularly the ones we're highlighting on season two, is that Once these cases were figured out, adjudicated, and these criminals were prosecuted and convicted, it actually, in many ways, changed completely the way reporting was done in hospitals or new lab tests were invented as a result of these crimes. So these cases not only were important to obviously prosecute and put the bad people behind bars, but they changed the whole nature of the way we practice medicine in many instances. Doctor, do you believe that there is enough support out there for, let's say, the victims of these crimes and their families? Because in the regular criminal justice system, and this bugs me to no end, there is never enough justice and support for them. The system almost abuses them again because it's such a difficult system. And and so I wonder for you, do they have enough of a voice and enough of, of an advocate out there to help them? No, they absolutely do not. And I'll tell you why. Because... It's very difficult to prosecute a healthcare worker for murder because a lot of times, even if a healthcare worker is blatantly incompetent, you have to prove motive. Okay. So it's one thing medical negligence, general overwhelming incompetence, but to show that they had a criminally minded intention and motive to commit murder is nearly impossible. That's why they're not really prosecuted. If you look at how many people have ever been prosecuted and put behind bars for actual murder in the action of being a medical professional, it's really very few. It usually just ends up you kick them out and you take their license away. But just to your point, justice is rarely served. And that's why we really wanted to highlight, particularly in season two, the importance of figuring out who these bad people are, how they did these crimes, and how to make sure we're aware and to make sure it doesn't happen to you. Absolutely. We have an exclusive clip for you now from the upcoming episode that will be out on Saturday. We heard very early that some of his colleagues had concerns about his behavior. He seemed altered sometimes at work. He was sometimes sweating and appeared unwell. We did hear from some witnesses that he had what looked like needle marks and he had abscesses on his arms. 
the abscess on his arm would actually bleed through during a procedure and he would be asked to leave and, and take care of that situation. So his colleagues, the medical professionals, would ask him, what's going on with your arm? Are you okay? He told his colleagues that he had cancer for which he needed to have repeated injections. Taken together with the fact that he seemed altered sometimes at work, I'm not sure people believed that. The abscesses, the profuse sweating, all these things kind of rolled up into signs of addiction. This is what I find so obscene about what happened in this case. Like, how is it possible that someone, I think it was, what, 16 hospitals in seven states? How in the world could these, I guess, medical detectives find this guy and finally realize that he was the source of the hepatitis C infections. Well, the problem is, is that, you know, doctors at least have to register their licenses and so do nurses with the medical board and the nursing boards respectively, but medical techs don't. There really is no centralized reporting mechanism to register and license a medical tech. So a medical tech, for example, can go from one state to another, and there's no record of his activity in the previous state, the way there potentially could be with a licensed nurse or doctor. That's why it was so hard. That's why they had so much trouble figuring out who it was and how he was able to get away with it in so many different places. But this is a guy who was fired from a bunch of jobs because he was passed out or had like, you know, a needle sticking out of him because of his addiction. Oh, my God. And there was another thing I saw in the episode that really freaked me out, doctor. He was apparently in the operating room with with oozing, pussing abscesses on his arms. I, 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 it's like a horror movie. It, it unfortunately is like a horror movie. This is in, in, in to your point, this is one of the most interesting episodes of the season coming up this Saturday and it's unfortunately it's very sort of disgusting but it's it it's it's a good cautionary tale and it really makes you think next time i go to a medical professional trust but verify and if it doesn't seem right it may not be right ask other people around ask the other doctors the nurses and if something if you ask all of these victims retrospectively or their family did you seem like something was off? Most of them said, yeah, there were telltale signs that I was sort of, I couldn't, it was incredulous because I'm in a hospital. So you just don't believe that this disheveled weirdo is really trying to do something bad to me. Yeah. Always watch out for the disheveled weirdo. <laughs> Good advice. <laughs> Thank you so much. We're really excited about this. Once again, you can catch the new episode of Dr. Dubrow's License to Kill every Saturday at six o'clock. On the East Coast and on the West Coast, that's on the Oxygen Network. And of course, don't forget, he's on Ease Botched, which airs on Mondays at 9 p.m. East Coast, West Coast. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. On to our next case. This one is horrific, and it has me furious. I am so mad about this. I can barely contain myself. To me, this is a case of further proof that sexual assaults against children are not taken seriously enough. Proof positive. Two Amish brothers in Seymour, Missouri, 
were arrested in June, and they were accused of repeatedly raping their 12-year-old sister. That is when the rapes began. They were charged with six counts of rape, one count of incest, but the charges were negotiated down to molestation. That is a crime in itself. How in the world is this molestation? This is rape without question. I agree 100%, Anna. It's, it's horrible. This prosecutor should be held to answer on this. We'll see how that's going to go. Um, but uh, again, I, we do a lot of work with victims of sexual assault, lots of children that are victims. Um, this is just a horrible, horrible misuse of the justice system. It's not the intent of the justice system. Um, it, there's something behind this. There's a driving force behind this. I, I don't understand this, but we see this all the time. And this, the only person I care about when I read this story is the 13-year-old victim. It's the only person that matters to me through this whole debacle. Um, the prosecutor, to make a decision like that, Anna, to, 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 to minimize something with a probation, I think it was a five-year probation, I have no idea why the prosecutor decided to label this just a molestation. A molestation could be something as simple as rubbing a child on their back if there's some type of sexual gratification in it. This was full-on intercourse and beyond, which is a straight-up rape. And for these two brothers to participate in something like that with their own sister, it's also very likely, Anna, as you know better than anybody else, that there's a good chance there could be other victims out there within the Amish community itself or even outside of it. But what it really does is send a message to victims and people who are on the fence about coming forward as a victim or as a witness or somebody with information, why would I come forward? This nothing is going to happen. And I've no, I, I, I can't come forward for whatever reason. You're not motivating giving victims encouragement to come forward because the right thing happens. You're putting up walls, and we see that all the time. I really hope this prosecutor is held to answer to some degree by city council, the, the board of supervisors on the county, somebody that, that this should also shock. And I looked, I did some research. I haven't seen anybody except for an organization spearheaded by two young ladies that were upset with this. I haven't seen any of the city leaders or the county leaders step up and say, this shocks us also. This should not have happened. And what that does in turn, it sends a message to me and probably most people that they condone it. I, I, I cannot believe this. I, I do believe that there is a growing, if you will, an uproar in the country about this case, way beyond Seymour, Missouri, because it seems people outside of Seymour and a lot of good people in Seymour, right, know that this is wrong. This is absolutely, absolutely wrong. Let's get into some of the details of what we know and, and the prosecution's explanation for this plea deal. So the brothers are 22-year-old Aaron Schwartz and 18-year-old Petty. So authorities first became aware of the sexual assault of the sister when the 12-year-old girl became pregnant. She became pregnant by one of her brothers. By the time the girl gave birth, she was 13, and a doctor who treated this child mother is the one 
who called the authorities about the rape. He used a hotline to report this. That's how it was revealed. Not by anybody else in the community who would have seen this girl at 12 years old pregnant, but it was a doctor who called the authorities. So the brother... Sorry, the doctor reported via hotline? I missed that part. Yes, a hotline. Doctors nationally are mandated reporters, and they should be calling law enforcement directly the minute they have any information of child abuse, especially sexual assault. So I want to know why that doctor chose to call a hotline. Did they remain anonymous? Do we know that? I don't know the answer to that. Um, And that would be interesting if they used a hotline to remain anonymous because the culture. Is this a doctor that is absorbed in the culture or some type of group that where they have a history of this? That doctor failed to call law enforcement directly. Call the hotline. That may meet the threshold, but it's odd to me that the doctor chose a hotline. You don't like that? No, I don't. Okay. I'm just grateful he called the authorities. I agree with you. Should have been 911 right away. But I am so grateful that at least this doctor did call the authorities as required by law, as right. required by law. And what we don't know is, is he an Amish doctor, right? No. I, that, that's, we have no idea. Uh, we don't have more information on the doctor. So after this, both of the brothers are arrested. And here's the amazing thing. According to the authorities, they allegedly admitted to having well, they say sex, excuse me, raping, raping their sister six times over the past year. But there's more, because if that's not disgusting, it gets worse. They weren't alone. They had two younger brothers, minors, minors under the age of 18, who allegedly joined in the raping of this 12-year-old girl, their sister, their sister. Where were their parents? Where were their parents? Okay. And to give you more insight, because I'm sorry, these are sick minds. There's, n- there's no mincing words here. When these two suspects, the brothers, were questioned by police, Aaron, this is, this is what he was asked. Would you ever do it again? Which is an interesting question to ask. This was his answer. Not to a little one like that. What the hell does that mean? But maybe if she were 14? Right. Oh, please. Oh, my God. I, again, I cannot believe that these two walked. All right. So the 13-year-old girl gave birth in September. The child is a product of these rapes. It is also a product of incest. One of her brothers is the father of this child. So the county prosecutor originally agreed to release the two brothers on a $100,000 bond, as long as they promised to stay away from their sister and other little girls. Give me a break. Oh, they How promised. The, they, well, they promised. I, I didn't realize that. They promised. Okay. How did these two ever get released? Because when they got released, where did they go? Because the justice system failed them. They went home. They went home. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm so upset about this case. I can't Back tell into you. the den of the sexual predators that cause this whole nightmare for them. Uh, den of evil. Den yes, of absolutely. evil. So the two plead not guilty at their arraignment in July. Okay. 
That's their legal right to do that. So here's what happens. The case is supposedly going to go to trial, right? And there will be a trial and there will be a jury and someone will decide what happened here. Well, before it goes to trial, the brothers reach a plea agreement with the county prosecutor. And the judge agrees to these terms. And this is what I want to know is, what is wrong with these people that anyone would agree to the following terms? I'm holding them all accountable for this. They are, it's almost as if they are, they're, it's like another crime being imposed on a child that has already been victimized. Okay? This is just, oh, it's criminal in another way. So, in exchange for pleading guilty to two counts of molestation, two counts of molestation, right? They were each given suspended prison sentences totaling 15 years, meaning no prison time, zero, okay? They walk. So instead of going to prison, the two brothers will then spend the next five years on probation, five years of the 15. Oh, and look at this. They have to complete the Missouri Sex Offender Treatment Program because we know how effective those programs are. And they're going to have to commit one, they're going to have to perform 100 hours of community service. Oh, yeah, that's going to teach them a lesson. But wait. They were ordered to write a letter of apology to their community because... No one's thinking about this 13-year-old girl. She's the victim here, but somehow this has offended the community. I'm just so disgusted. Oh, my God, I want to flip a table. So I'm a big Anna Garcia fan. You're a huge (laughs) voice and fighter and warrior for these victims. We see this all the time, Anna. You and I have discussed cases like this. Ad nauseum. It happens all the time, and they will continue to happen until you see a prosecutor and a judge to some degree held accountable for making these ridiculous, scary, terrifying decisions. Uh, can you imagine if she was re-victimized again? Well, wait a minute. Very well, possible. Louis, well, wait a minute, Lewis. So here's, here's mm. the further uproar, okay? So, all right, there's community pressure to say, what the heck have you done here? You, you can't let these guys walk. So now the prosecutor is saying, oh, we want to revoke this plea deal. He's claiming, which is just as horrible, don't get me wrong, which is just as horrible, that um, apparently, apparently that part of the condition of probation was that they were to stay away from this little girl, right? This 13-year-old girl and other young girls. But most importantly, the victim here, oh, guess what? They went home and they apparently violated that. They've been around her. So now they're trying to revoke the probation because they apparently violated the probation. Oh, give me a break. And so now the prosecutor, like a light has shined upon his his head, his brain, and he now sees this clearly. Oh, I think this prosecutor needs to go. I think this judge needs to go. I am just sick of, oh, I'm just so sick of this. Yeah, maybe they can both write a letter of apology, the judge and the prosecutor. To the community. To the community, absolutely. Yeah, because, as a yeah, starting point. Yeah. And look, that's not a prosecutor. He's doing the work of a defense attorney. That's crazy. You are a prosecutor, and by definition, you're going in the wrong direction. Um, it, mm, it, it's mm. Lewis, I want to talk about, um, you're an ambassador for PAVE. 
Yes, Can you tell everyone what that is and the kind of work you do for them and why this is so personal for you? Yeah, it's very personal. About 10 years ago, I became uh, an ambassador for PAVE, which is an acronym for Promoting Awareness Victim Empowerment. It's a wonderful uh, national organization run by an incredible lady by the name of Angela Rose, who years ago uh, was at, I think she was 17 at the time, was a victim of a horrible assault and kidnapping. Um, and she flipped that around and started this incredible organization where it's it, just about every college you can name has a program, some type of chapter in it that points victims of sexual assault in this direction. And in that, uh, we also deal with a lot of children uh, that have been victimized. But when they come to me, usually what we get involved in are cases that aren't moving forward and aren't being prosecuted and not being moved in the direction that you would think would much like this one in the direction that uh, they should be going. There are flags and the things that normally happen are not happening. So we focus on cases like that, our, our firm, uh, to get these cases put on the right track and calling out prosecutors, anybody in law enforcement, put up some type of barrier for an outside reason that has nothing to do with, with an honest, ethical, hard-hitting investigation to the truth, but something other motive. And it's crazy how many of these we find. So back to the these two Amish brothers, to me that screams, here we go again, uh, screaming for a grand jury investigation. The first thing you have to look at from the outside is what is the catalyst, what is the cause for these ridiculous decisions, not just by the prosecutor, but by the judge? Is there an underlying current here? Is there something in that community that's keeping the things that normally happen from happening? I'll take it a step further. You also have to look at other sexual assault cases in that same area and see what road they've normally taken. Um, and, and, and if they went in the, in the direction they should have gone, something tells me this isn't the first time that decisions like this have been made in that judicial, judicial uh, uh, system. Scary. Uh, it is scary because the prosecutor was quoted as saying, you know, when asked like, well, why did you ever agree to this plea deal and to let the counts of rape be dropped down to two counts of molestation. And so <laughs> the prosecutor said, well, quote, the brothers had already received very severe punishment within the local Amish community and that the community is reluctant to accept non-Amish courts authority. Doesn't matter. He's still are subject to the same uh, laws that we all are. Yeah, doesn't matter. Not for yeah, that you defense can, before. Uh, you can believe in your God, but um, I'm sorry, but there's no God that thinks this is okay. So, uh, I I am just I'm thinking that there's just a understanding in the area that whatever happens within the Amish, the Amish take care of it themselves, and so. The situation's been taken care of. Who in their right mind thinks that it's okay for brothers to rape a 12-year-old girl and then she gets pregnant with, with, I mean, this is incest. It's rape. These things are against the law. I hate to ask this question. Do we know where that child is? The victim's child? Whose custody of that child is in right now? I believe that she is with the family because... That is where the alleged probation violation took place with the two brothers. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. The fact that this child was not taken from these parents is also criminal to me. How is that okay? How is that okay? Why? Because their religious beliefs are different? No. No. I, I, I just, I hope that this story, which is getting a lot of national attention, Good. I hope that this will light a fire under a lot of people to put a lot of pressure on this area and this district to say, this is not okay. We cannot permit this to happen. Oh, I am just beside myself with this one. So this is what's going to happen now, that if there's going to be a new hearing now about the probation violation, I don't know if this means that the plea deal goes away. I don't know if that means, okay, then we're going to have a trial. Oh, wait a minute. And one more thing that the prosecutor said, I, I just remembered this. In addition to the Amish community taking care of their own and that they've been severely dealt with, the prosecutor said this was going to be a really hard one to prove. So he didn't want to take it to trial. I don't know of what better proof you could have than an actual child being born out of the sexual assault, the rape. What other proof do you need? And the brothers so, admitted it. They need an, mm, mm-hmm. this guy needs a new job. Oh, yeah, he does. Absolutely. They need a new prosecutor. They need someone who's going to yeah. work for the people of Seymour, Missouri. They deserve better. And that little girl deserves better. Yes, ma'am. And her Absolutely. baby deserves better. Yeah. <sighs> All right. The next hearing on this one is scheduled for October 6th, and I'm not going to let go of this one. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about. A South Carolina county supervisor is indicted for trafficking methamphetamines. Chester County Supervisor Kenneth Stewart was indicted for allegedly using government cars to run his meth operation, and he was doing it while he was on the clock. Of course, because the best use of time. Investigators say that Stewart was so desperate for money for his drugs that he was also conspiring to steal the catalytic converters from the county-owned vehicles because it's not enough to run meth through the county government cars. All right. Among the charges, conspiracy, two counts of distribution of methamphetamine, trafficking, and common law misconduct in office. The felonies... Some of them could carry as much as, these are the more serious ones, up to 25 to 30 years in prison and a $200,000 fine. Clearly, Guy is out of his mind on drugs. Yeah, absolutely. Quite the businessman, using what he has. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right. These are the comments. Miriam A. writes, great upstanding citizen. Nelson Q., what else did he do in those cars? Nelson, I do not want to know. I really don't. And Brita A. writes, what a scumbag. Yes, indeed. Now, this next story has made national headlines because of who's involved. Former football player Joe Montana manages to stop a woman who apparently broke into his house, although they're saying she walked in. So how she got in is still a little fuzzy. Anyway, she breaks into the house and she tries to kidnap his nine-month-old grandchild. The woman walks into Montana's Malibu home, and the baby is sleeping in the playpen, so she grabs the baby. The 64-year-old Hall of Famer is home with his wife. They hear something. They're taking care of the grandchild. Montana and his wife confront the woman, who is holding the baby. So as you can imagine, the most precious thing in the world 
like this woman has to be either crazy, criminal, both, right? Because she's trying to take your grandchild and there is nothing scarier ever. And it's like, I don't know whether he he saw the grandchild as a, as a precious football as well because he wasn't going to let her get out. Montana and his wife, they do some form of a wrestling with the woman in, I guess, the easiest way possible because they didn't harm the baby in any way. Nobody was harmed in, in this, this confrontation, but they got the baby back. The woman takes off and she goes to somebody else's house, a neighbor's house. That is where she is then arrested, 39-year-old Sodasi Dalzell. She took off to a nearby house. She was found there, arrested and booked on suspicion of kidnapping and burglary. Is this what I don't understand is how did she get in the house? Was the house unlocked? I'm kind of thinking so. Probably unlocked. Most likely. Most likely. She knew who lived there. Um, but I got to tell you, I'm really impressed with the restraint that Joe Montana and his wife were able to show. Because when I read they were able to, they first attempted to talk her down um, and minimize any type of, of struggle that could have hurt the baby, hurt the child. Yeah. Um, you know, I am a loving grandfather. And if I would have walked into that situation, I pray that I could use that same restraint. Um, nothing's more precious, more more special than a grandchild. And kudos to them. She's obviously sick. Um, but I also heard that uh, she also wrote a letter, uh, gave a verbal letter of apology. Uh, so maybe everything will be okay for her. Oh, yeah. Well, let's hope that the courts here in L.A. County are a little different. Let's and hope. that just a little letter is not enough, right? Just yeah. not enough. Oh, my gosh. So Ruby W. writes, they knew her, I'm sure, but they are trying to make it look like a stranger walked into their house to take their grandchild. Well, Ruby, my guess is that that will all come out in the case if they did know her, um, if she was stalking them, or if they had a relationship, this is all going to come out in, in the court case. And then Elizabeth C. writes, criminals are getting bold out there with this pandemic. Oh, I do believe that the mm. stress from the pandemic is pushing people to the edge, right? I think that's, I'm not saying that that caused this, but it's definitely pushing people. True. And then Connie B. writes, Grandma and Grandpa Bear will protect. Absolutely. <laughs> that they did. That they did. Well, you, that is. And it's great work. Uh, well, this is our program. Lewis, we're so glad you were able to join us. Where can people find you if either they want to follow you on social media or they you know, want to hit you up for some help? GetBitInvestigations.com. Our entire social media footprint is on there. Come on over, take a look. But uh, It's always a pleasure with you, Anna. You are so passionate. And you make me want to work even harder on these cases. So thank you. Oh, well, you know what, Louis? I've always been inspired by you because you do a lot of pro bono work. You really do. And you've led to some great exoneration cases and you help victims. I mean, we've even had people who have called in during our podcast and you went the extra step to follow up with them, to help them with a case. I mean, you just, you're one of the good guys. No, I appreciate that. We're, Thanks, we're, Louis. We're people on our team. Thanks. Thank you, Anna. So you can always find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N on all social media platforms. And you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And of course, you can see us on our YouTube channel and you can get updates by subscribing to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. We've got more than 4 million subscribers and we thank each and every one of you. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast. I'm Anna Garcia. And as we say every week, don't do crime. Don't do crime.